couple of months have included talks on uh, our humanness and talks on compassion and dependence or codependence and how they fit together. Some talk on attention and intimacy and a talk on um, consciousness and respect for money, all kinds of aspects of practice that I'm trying to figure out myself and sharing. There's a story some of you may have heard of Mullah Nasruddin. He got a wonderful recipe for a casserole and went to the marketplace and bought a, a, about a pound of meat to cook up in this casserole and he was walking home and there was a big crow that saw him walking by carrying the stuff and he, the crow flew down and grabbed the bag with the meat in it and flew off and Nasruddin yelled at him and said, you dummy, you forgot the recipe. <laughs> and sometimes I'm not sure whether you're getting the recipe or the meat or who get it, who's getting what in here. But anyway, we come together and I think part of what's important is just that we sit together and that we take an hour a week to not do anything at all or very little, um, ostensibly, uh, and listen and pay attention and reconnect as we can inside. And to share that with one another, to, to have the energy of Sangha is very helpful. Um, and perhaps through the talks or the discussions and things that follow them, there is at times some sense of inspiration, that would be my hope, to sense or feel uh, that spiritual life is really something that's alive and not just something to relegated to books or to some ideas that we have. That it points us together in some direction of understanding or opening. But that's about the best that's possible is to point a direction. The fortunate and unfortunate truth about it is that that's all that's possible other than that, it's up to each person. We have to do it ourselves. Nobody can do it for us. It's quite interesting. Nobody can be born for you. Nobody can die for you. You'll find that out sooner or later. And nobody can let go for us. I mean, that would be wonderful if they could. There would be long lines, I think, and, you know. But it's not possible. We each actually have to do that process, like the process of being born or dying. We have to do it ourselves. Sometimes I wonder if, as especially those of us who've met together over some time, if I've made it too easy. People come here and sit once a week, and the sitting is lovely, and there's a talk, and usually I find some new joke or story, and we share some, something or other, um, and it's all kind of sweet and we'll pay attention and then life will be fine or something like that. And I talk about self-acceptance, which is certainly important, or kindness. Of course, with most of us being the way we are, self-acceptance is actually a very big job, I realize that. But nevertheless. <laughs> My teacher, Ajahn Chah, said at one point that there are two kinds of spiritual practice. There's the practice in order to be happy or comfortable. 
And so you can make yourself a little bit calmer through meditation or through saying some prayers or mantra. You can be kinder to other people or you can be a little more straightforward or honest. You can sit and do a, a little bit of silence or chant before you eat, say, hold hands and chant Om or whatever. And you can make your life work better, basically, by that kindness or by that uh, quieting of yourself. And that's one aspect of spiritual practice, one dimension of it. That's the practice of making life more comfortable. The other kind of practice, he said, is the practice for freedom or liberation or fulfilling the, the capacity that we have to live totally or fully. And that kind of practice has nothing to do with comfort whatsoever. In fact, very often, although not always, it's the opposite. Ramana Maharshi, the great Indian saint and teacher, said at one point, Enlightenment is not your birthright. You don't have it automatically. Those who succeed or who attain or realize or understand do so through proper effort. Now, what does it mean to make right effort or proper effort in spiritual practice? It's spoken of in a lot of different ways. There's a kind of gradual approach which was what the Buddha spoke about fairly often, although not always. He talked about right effort or effort or energy in practice as having four, four aspects. Uh, the effort, in a sense, or the energy to purify ourselves or our hearts. The first of those four, and you can sense it in your practice if you wish, is to abandon that which is unskillful unskillful actions or states of mind or attitudes, to let go of them, things that are harmful for us, addictions, ways that we harm other people, to let go of living on automatic pilot, to abandon or practice letting go of putting aside the things that we know aren't so useful to us. Now, one, a person who speaks very eloquently about this is a woman named Peace Pilgrim. And I've read from her book on certain other evenings. Um, she was a woman who in the 1950s, after raising her family, uh, looked around at the world and decided that she wanted to live as authentically and genuinely what she knew was possible. So she left her home and everything and got a sweatshirt that said Peace Pilgrim on it and matching sweatpants and had a little bag of a few a toothbrush and a few things and decided to just walk kind of like a modern American sadhu or holy person would, would do in India, but it was here in America. And she slept outside unless someone offered her a place to sleep and she fasted unless someone offered her food and the only thing she talked about was peace. And she walked for about 20 years around the country speaking about peace with people and it's wonderful. And she said it came to her gradually. She describes her realization. First, there was this dissatisfaction that things didn't seem quite right. And then it seemed time to let go of a lot of things. She said there were four basic relinquishments. The first was the relinquishment of her own self-will to listen to something deeper than just what she wanted. 
The second was the relinquishment of the feeling of separateness, that she had to be different and separate than everyone else. So it's not a small thing to let go of. The third was the relinquishment of all other attachments, particularly the attachments to people and people being any way that she thought they should be rather than how they were. And then the fourth, the last, was the relinquishment. She said this was the most helpful for her in her heart, actually. The relinquishment of all of her negative feelings, her judgments, her blame, and her worry primarily. She said, who am I to judge other people? And what good does my worrying do me anyway? Worrying is different than concern or caring. And why blame? How do I know who to blame? And so she said, one day I just let go of these things and started to walk. So that's the first of these kinds of effort, the effort to let go of that which is unskillful. And it's a practice that you can work with. The second is to maintain that absence. The first is to let go, and the second is to maintain the absence of those things, which is to say once you learn to let go, because we've all let go, it's like Mark Twain learning to stop smoking, right? We've all let go many times for a moment, only to, <laughs> to, to pick it right up again when the person doesn't behave exactly how we thought they should or the circumstances aren't what we'd like. So the second is to maintain that through inner and outer support, through the support of the Sangha, through the support of our sitting practice, of our inner attention, through whatever it takes when we learn to let go to uh, nourish or foster or stabilize that. Then the, the, the third and fourth are the opposites of the first two. The third is to develop in us that which is skillful. And the image the Buddha uses um, is of training the mind or steadying the mind the way uh, a craftsman would make an arrow that's true by turning it round and round on a lathe and seeing where it's crooked and gradually smoothing it until it's perfectly straight. And in the same way, he used the image of the mind to see all the ways that the mind gets out of balance and practice cultivating or developing that which is skillful, attention, kindness, steadiness, and ability to open or let go. A non-judging quality, a blamelessness. And in the monastery where I got my first training, that was a lot of the practice. It was a practice of cultivating skillful qualities and it was done by walking in ways that you really took care with your steps and with your body or by sweeping the paths in a way that was a meditation. So it wasn't just to get the paths clean, but it was to enjoy the sound of the bamboo broom and the leaves and to, to feel the movement of your body in harmony with the earth and to learn to do things with that kind of connection or care. Or to clean your bowl. There was a whole practice of how you clean your begging bowl. And you put it down in a certain way and you clean it in a certain way. I rebelled at first. I wanted to do it my own way. But basically it was a kind of tea ceremony. It was a surrender to do it in a particular way and to enjoy it. And then the last is not only to develop attention or kindness or that sense of uh, grace or ease with things, but to sustain what's skillful by changing one's life to live more simply or to live 
one's words and actions in a way that's connected to the truth or to one's heart. An image that's good for this kind of effort, at least that fits well for me, is that of caring for a garden. You weed it, that's the removing of unskillful things or let go of it. You nourish it, you, um, you put fertilizer and you make sure that it's watered. Um, and you enjoy the growth of that which is beautiful that comes from it. You plant beautiful seeds in the garden. So that's the gradual approach. There's also a sudden approach, which we'll talk more about later, which doesn't bother with all that. It's, as one Zen master says, just put it down. Put everything down. Just be here and forget about the past and future. That's enough. Now, what's fundamental about both of these ways, about working gradually or suddenly, is that they both require attention to see what's here in either case, to see what's true. Before you could even change it or develop or nourish it, you have to get present. We have to see what is true in our bodies, in our hearts, in our minds. And then we can begin to work with it. So the key effort is that of attention, of actually getting present being willing and able to live more with what is here directly. Now, ordinarily, that's difficult for us. We have a very strong habit of staying in the past, grasping after what isn't here, imagining, trying to change, trying to fix, trying to become, and trying to avoid what we don't like. So it's hard to concentrate. You sit and decide you'll sit and... Follow your breath in meditation. And does the mind do it very much? No. It plans and it tries to change and imagine and does all this whole fancy dance. It's particularly difficult in a culture like ours, which is so speedy and so addicted in many ways and in which the values are of getting and becoming and acquiring. And we manage by doing that to avoid, by keeping ourselves busy, to avoid our fear or our loneliness or our death, to avoid the basic characteristics of things. We don't want to see what Ajahn Chah used to say often about life, is that it's just this much. No matter what it is, it's terrific for a while and then it's gone. It's terrible for a while and then it's gone that it's impermanent, no matter what happens, beautiful or awful, it changes. That it's unsatisfactory in that there's no thing that you can get or state or, or experience that will stay, that will do it for us. There's loss, there's change, there's, there's pleasure and there's pain and they alternate. All of that is called dukkha, which means that it's not quite how we would like it. We'd like it to be permanently pleasant and happy. And it doesn't meet our expectations. And that it's out of control, that we don't really control it very much at all. I mean, we don't even control our own minds, not to speak of our bodies, not to speak of other people. And because this is difficult to see, we move a lot and squirm a lot and keep ourselves busy. And there's a kind of layer that we have to face if we want to quiet ourselves, which is what we've avoided. For each person it might be different. For one person it might be their grief. 
For another, their loneliness. For some, they just don't know what to do when it's quiet. It's scary. All kinds of things. To pay attention, to learn the art of paying attention, requires some practice, that we learn how to sit and steady ourselves, to steady our bodies, and to steady, to listen with the steadiness of our heart, to actually be with what is here in our experience, pleasant and unpleasant, beautiful and ugly, the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows, as it's called. And that's what sitting is about, really, is to sit and be with the 10,000 joys and sorrows and see them and feel them and let, let ourselves be as we are. Now, traditionally, there are two different languages or approaches for this paying attention. And it's a very deep attention that's spoken of. The first is the approach of a lot of effort or energy. It's the samurai approach, the, the approach that emphasizes strength. And there is a Chinese uh, Zen master named Shun Hua who had a temple in San Francisco and now lives up in uh, Ukiah in north-central California, who comes from this sort of samurai Zen-style practice. And when he first started training monks in the late 60s and early 70s, they had a, a, an old warehouse in the industrial district in San Francisco that wasn't heated, and they made it into their Zendo. And the, the kind of retreats he led were 49 and 108-day retreats, and you sat and you slept on your cushion. You slept sitting up. You sat there for 49 days. You would eat there. You would get up and do a little walking and then sit back down again. And that's all that you would do. And it was in the winter and it was very cold. His students used to call it the ice box. You'd go for 49 days in the ice box and not move. That's one way to train yourself. That's the samurai way. It's going through the fire. There's a book by a a Sufi woman, um, Irina Tweedy's book called The Chasm of Fire, that's a nice description of the path of fire. And even in the practice of Mahasi Sayadaw, which is something, which is the basis of the Vipassana that we do, a lot of it is done in intensive retreat practice. And you sit and walk for 15 or 20 hours a day. Many of you have done a 10-day retreat or a month-long retreat. And it's the practice of sitting still and concentrating and then naming whatever is arising. There's the in-breath and there's the out-breath and there's sadness and there's fear and there's a sound and there's the sensation of the body and there's joy and ecstasy and then disappointment and then there's the next in-breath and then there's boredom and I can't stand it and out-breath. And you simply sit there and name everything until all of a sudden things start to open up. And what we took as solid or controllable or mine begins to show a deeper level of truth or reality. That it's just this changing stuff that we get to dance with but we don't own. And somehow in the process, the glue of our owning and attaching it starts to dissolve or break up. The person who, being really on the way, falls upon hard times in the world will not, as a consequence, turn to that friend who offers them refuge and comfort 
and solace and encourages their old self to survive. Rather, they will seek out someone who will faithfully and inexorably help them to risk themselves so that they may endure the difficulty and pass courageously through it. Only to the extent that a person exposes themselves over and over again to annihilation can that which is indestructible be found within them. In this daring lies dignity and the spirit of true awakening. That's from Karl Fried von Durkheim. So this is the samurai tradition. You just go through it. And it's wonderful for some people. <laughs> it's, the, it's the effort. And, and in almost everyone's life, there are times that call on that effort. And it's wonderful to have found that in yourself before it's time before the accident or the death or the, or the difficulty. Discover that that is a resource within you. I sat with one Rinzai Zen master, uh, an old Japanese Rinzai master. I have a great affection for him. And Rinzai Zen is you work with a koan and you sit and you don't move and you make the slightest movement. I, I have allergies and I, would, I started to sniffle and somebody went with a stick. No sniffling in the Zendo. Sit up straight. And there's this this sense of tremendous tension. You sit and you don't move, and then they ring the bell, and you're all supposed to go for an interview with the Zen master, um, but not everyone gets an interview. Most of you do, um, and it's, uh, it's first come, first serve. So being a you know, samurai type myself, at least in those years, I would get, they'd sit and you wouldn't move, and they'd ring the bell, and I'd get up and I'd race to be the first one there. <laughs> And I'd get to the door, and I'd go in to see him and bow and tell him, he'd say, what's your koan? And I would recite my koan, and he'd ask it back to me, this puzzle, you know, what is the sound of one hand clapping or whatever. And I'd, he'd, he'd ask me, all right, what is the sound of one hand clapping or whatever koan I was working on? And I'd give him my answer. I'd just been sitting for a few hours. And he would say things like, oh, too much ego, and ring his bell and send me out. You know? And then I'd go and sit for, you saw him four times a day. And I'd sit for three or four more hours and not move, and they'd ring the bell and I'd run in, and he'd have a new answer for him. What is the sound of one hand clapping? And I'd give him my answer, and he'd say, oh, 2%, and ring his bell and send me out. After a number of days of that, I got really angry at him. I mean, I gave him some good answers, you know. And I came in, I was so angry, I went in to see him, and I bowed, and I was just getting furious, because days I gave him really good answers, none of them would... And so he, he asked me the, what, what the koan was. Um, I said, the sound of one hand clapping, and he asked me what it was. And before he could get it out of his mouth, I, he had a little candle on an altar there, and I put out the candle with my hand, and I picked up the bell, and I rang it myself. <laughs> and I walked out of the room. And I said, fuck you, Roshi. <laughs> and as I got to the door walking out, I heard the bell ring again, and he said, not the answer. <laughs> Mm. 
So that's one way of practice. <laughs> it's really the practice of being willing to sit through the fire or to go through the difficulty of your life, to find that place of your inner strength. Then there's a whole other way that practice happens for us. And in truth, it happens to each of us in both ways at different times because it's quite organic. And there's the approach of strength where you do it and do it until you, until you come to this very deep letting go through your effort. The other language, the other approach is much more the approach of space itself. And it's a very radical approach. It's a radical opening to non-self, to non-separateness, to non-possession. And from this point of view, there is nothing to get or be or do or have. And there's nowhere to go. What more could you have than what's here? There's colors and sounds and physical perceptions and thoughts and feelings. That's all there ever was before and that's all there ever be. What, what do you expect? This is it. Now, from that point of view, there's no effort to make. One way that it's expressed by a teacher that I met at one point, he said, why don't you just pretend that you're enlightened and kind of practice that, and maybe after a while you won't be able to tell the difference. <laughs> or again, as Ramana Maharshi spoke, he said there are two ways to freedom or liberation. One is through a deep inquiry to see what am I or who am I and keep stripping away the sense of self to discover that we are nothing or everything through inquiry. And the other way to liberation or freedom is the root of surrender, of just letting go. It's very, very deep, the practice of surrender, of being. Not my will, but thine. There's a wonderful old book, a story called The Way of the Pilgrim, that's a little bit like Peace Pilgrim, but it was written in the 1800s, and it's a, a pilgrim who's saying the sacred mantra, the Jesus Prayer, actually, and wanders all the way across the Soviet Union, across Siberia and everywhere, and just does it as a surrender, not my will but thine, wherever God is taking me, I will follow, and just says this prayer, and each time he says it, it's a way of surrender. And the book really account, is an account of this practice of surrender, of listening to the divine melody rather than our own. Now, there's a practice in India for sadhus that's one of the most austere practices. And India has five million yogis and sadhus still of every kind, the kinds who meditate and ones who lay on beds of nails and, and whatever you could imagine yogis could do is still being done in India. It's really quite extraordinary. But this practice is a practice of surrender in which you take two or three vows. The first is a vow of silence. The second is a vow of not staying in one place more than a week, wandering. And the third is a vow not to put anything into your own mouth. 
So the practice is that you wander as a sadhu and then you sit somewhere. And if God decides that you're to be fed, then someone will come up and they'll offer you food. And since you don't take it, maybe they'll put it in your mouth. And maybe they won't. And there are, there are sadhus who do this practice. And then people discover this is a holy man or holy woman and they feed this person for a while and then seven days are up and it's time to wander further and see if God will feed you. If you can imagine a practice like that. You know, and then we all think about, gee, what if I don't have enough money for rent this month or something like that? And we have our problems, I know, but what a level of trust. It's the practice of surrender to the universe, of opening to what is. And it's this listening, this trust, this opening that frees us, not our efforts. In the end, we don't become free from our own efforts to perfect ourselves or change things. It's already here. But rather to see that it is as it is. Now, it happens anyway to us in a very deep way when our friends die or our relationships end or the world turns out not to be what we hoped it would in certain ways. Things that we dearly wish turn out not to be so or maybe when it's time for our own death. But to do some spiritual practice is to have that awakening or realization before the end of our life so that we can live in that truth now. And the truth of this, which is always true, which is already true, is that we don't possess anything. That there is no self and nothing that we possess. That at best we rent it. We use it for a while. It's not ours, not another person, not our thoughts, not our own body. There is no past and no future. There's just this ever-present moment. And we are in the center of that, in the still point of the turning world, as T.S. Eliot said. There is nothing else but one moment after another after another, this timeless moment. And for this way, as St. Catherine said, all the way to heaven is heaven. To understand in this way is that this is it, this moment, every moment. So this other way of effort isn't of making or changing but it's to sit and surrender, to listen, to open. It doesn't, however, mean that we don't act in the world. There's, there comes in this surrender a kind of respect or responsibility, whatever you want to call it, for not just ourselves but everything, because we are everything when we surrender. For Mother Teresa, she expresses it beautifully, everything is Jesus. You see the, Jesus in the, the poor and the homeless, but the rich as well. Every person is Jesus to be served. And so her work 
is an expression of a kind of grace to be able to serve each day or each person or each circumstance. Even the suffering is the spiritual vision of Jesus. It's to surrender or listen and then become a vehicle for God's love in this world, a vehicle for that which is divine. Usually we're a vehicle for ourself, right? You know, or we get in a spiritual path and we're a vehicle for Buddhism or Christianity or something like that. This friend of mine who is a poet wrote at one point at Naropa in, in the poetry class there, he wrote a short verse that said, greater vehicle, lesser vehicle, all vehicles will be towed at owner's expense. <laughs> Joseph Campbell put it this way. He, he spoke of the same thing. He said, spiritual life is to become transparent to the divine, to allow that which is the true harmony of things to move through us. And that makes spiritual practice a very alive thing. It's a really alive process. And maybe we need to ask ourselves how to keep it alive. What questions should we be asking? Or should we do retreats? Or, sh or should what, what should we read? Or, or should we spend time in nature? Or should we sit more? Or should we serve and be with those who need our help in some way? For our heart's sake. Should we exercise and move our bodies. Is that what it would take to keep us alive and awake? Or spend time with Sangha? Or just relax? Maybe for some of us, if we listen, the divine will come more by relaxing than anything else. I think that's true for a lot of people in this culture. If you want to place the spiritual journey in time, if that helps you, then you can think of it as a garden and let practice be a very gentle or patient process. Gentle and strong, this combination. It's like the Tao, where there's these beautiful Chinese paintings of waterfalls and streams and so forth. And Lao Tzu says that the yielding conquers the resistant, that the soft conquers the hard, is a truth known to all yet often forgotten or not respected. To be like water on the rocks that finds its way over and over again. It means in some way to begin to work with the little things of our life, to take little practices, to brush your teeth mindfully, or to remember when you get out of your car and it's dark, to look up at the stars for just a couple of minutes. Or to add maybe one year, each year, to add one activity to your life that you're going to do with a grace or a kindness or real attention. Just think of that. In 10 or 20 years, there'd be 20 things that you did every day that was really alive for you. It's, it's a very gentle, slow process. 
to bring a sense of wakefulness or wonder or caring. To sit, maybe you want to add that to your day. To work in the garden. To make yourself the garden, to weed and plant and take time to let the sunshine of your heart and your attention warm you. Or to cultivate a little less sense of hurriedness or a little less sense of what I want or a little less blame or guilt or judgment and more acceptance, a kind of greatness of heart. Or to gradually cultivate good friends or to make our life a little bit more simple, to simplify our life little by little, to shape it in some way. That's the gradual way, and there's a real grace and beauty to it. However, if you're impatient, remember the film that was done on CBS about Marin County, entitled, I Want It All Now? That was about 10 years ago. It started with someone in a hot tub being massaged with peacock feathers. Did most of you see that? I'm sure you did. Well, if you want it all now, you can have it. (laughs) It's here. It means to be here completely, to see the suchness, the isness of it, to sense that what we seek is already present, that there's a silence that contains all of this color and storm and sound and so forth that is much greater than that, a big space of silence that's always here, that's here right now. And in the silence there's birth and death and tragedy and comedy and television and everything in between. to sense just here that we don't need to get any more. That wisdom is that we don't possess anything. We don't own a single thing. Would you like a mantra, a free mantra? (laughs) It was given to me by a Chinese teacher, a Chinese Chan master in Asia, but it's translated into English. You've heard it before, I imagine. The mantra is, let it go. Whatever it is, just let it go. You could also use let it be if you'd rather. Sing it to the melody of the Beatles if you want. It's a good mantra. It's just that much. Just let it go or let it be. Take a breath. Ah, just let it be. You could do that all day long. It's a great practice. Plenty. So if you're impatient, you can do it now. Just let everything open, crack open. Your body, your heart, your mind, especially your mind. You know, this evening in the room on the other side of the church is a a man speaking who I just met now, although I have admired his writing for some years, an old Englishman named Douglas Harding. Um, And he wrote a book about 30 or more years ago. Somebody sitting up here had a copy of it. The title of which is On Having No Head. And it's a little kind of Zen book. He says, a, 
He says he was walking in the Himalayas one day, just minding his business, so to speak, or perhaps in this case not minding his business. That's actually how it happens. And uh, letting go of minding his business. And all of a sudden he realized that he had no head, that that was a fiction, that there was anyone here at all. He said you could feel things, but that wasn't really a head. Um, that was just feelings. I mean, if you kind of cross your eyes, you could see there's something a little bit at the end here. But actually, there's just space here, and in it there are pictures and words and so forth, which contains everything. And so he wrote this book about this discovery, and since then he's been going around teaching people that uh, they don't have heads. <laughs> it's, it's really quite nice. That's his way of expressing this perfection or silence or grace. Zen Master Rinzai. The followers of the way who come to me from everywhere to learn, there was no one who comes who doesn't depend on something. But whatever they bring before me, I beat it down at once. If it's in their hands, I beat their hands. If it comes from the mouth, I beat it there. If through the eyes, I beat it in the eyes. Up till now, there has been no one who could stand alone. I have no dharma to give to people. I only cure diseases and undo knots. Followers of the way who come from every, everywhere, try not to depend on anything. Let me tell you this. There is no Buddha or dharma or anything to attain. What are you lacking? Do not be deceived. If you turn to the outside, there's no dharma. Neither is there anything to be obtained from the inside. Rather than attaching yourself to any words or practices, just come, calm down and seek nothing further. Don't cling to the past or future. This is much better than ten years of practice or pilgrimage, I assure you. Very straightforward fellow. Both of the ways, the way of nourishing and shaping and taking care and making the effort to create or to, to direct that which is beautiful in us in this gradual way like water, or the way that sees that it's already here. All we have to do is stop trying to get other things. They're both extraordinary openings. They both require a, 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 a surrender and an opening of our heart and being. And what's common to them both is the very simple act of letting go. What is best for you at this point? What areas of your life need nourishing or care? What needs to be simplified in your life? If it's not time for the big letting go, then what is it time to let go of? If you want to do it a little at a time, what is it time for? And what is it time to cultivate or nourish or, or develop? What is the deep opening that's asking for this in yourself? 
there is an effort in practice, no matter how you put it. There's a strange kind of effort. But if anything, it's more the effort to not do and not make and not have and not hold. It's just to let it be. Can I tell you a really bad joke? I will, anyway. There were two masters who were discussing the ways of practice. One master whose way of practice was through action, to serve, to give, to let go by giving everything, to let your doing, to let your driving, your sweeping, your cooking, all of that be your practice. It was the practice of letting the doing be, do itself. And then the other master, with whom he was arguing, or discussing, or debating, the practice was the practice of being, just to let things be. Not to do anything at all, but just let be. And so they were going back and forth, trying to figure out which was the true practice. This is really a bad joke. I'm embarrassed even before. <laughs> and finally, a disciple said, well, I heard the answer actually on the radio the other day when I was listening to an old Sinatra song that goes, doobie, doobie, doo. Oh. <laughs> to do spiritual practice, to even be engaged in it, is a wonderful thing. And it's also difficult and terrible and boring and everything else, but it's marvelous. And it's a privilege and a pleasure to speak about it and share it together. Anyone like to say anything or ask any questions or whatever? We have just a few more minutes left. If your personality uh, or your practicing letting go if you practice letting go if now, if that's your personality yes. and your way, will that make it easier to die? I hope so. <laughs> I really hope so. And I think it will, actually. I mean, I think the practicing of letting go that, we, that I've done, or that various of us have done, has made other kinds of letting go easier. Sometimes I found it's just as hard, but it doesn't take quite as long. Do you know what I mean? That there may be some moments where it's, oh my God, uh, it's, it's this difficult again. But somehow it doesn't seem to take as long. There's some other part that learns or knows. I hope so. Sasaki Roshi is his name. You can go ask him. <laughs> 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 
Okay, let us just sit together for a minute or so. Pretend you're enlightened. <laughs> just be with things exactly as they are without trying to make anything different. Let your heart be at rest or not as it wishes. Let your body be as it is. Let the breath be easy. May you plant beautiful seeds in your garden and nourish and cultivate them. Or may you discover that your garden and you are the same, that you are the whole world and enjoy the dance of birth and death. Take time to sit this week. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.